So this, so this week we have, uh, come on up, Melissa. Yeah, we're going to break out to Children's Church, but we also have a guest coming to preach this morning. Uh, Tom, would you come on up here with me? This is uh, Dr. Tom Howe. He is uh, the director of Church Plant. Plant, pl- new church plants uh, for the for the Baptist General Convention of Texas, also known as Texas Baptist, and he's a he's a personal friend of mine, and I've asked him to come and share. He led in uh, how to share the gospel, um, and uh, in our life connection groups, and he's going to preach over the same topic. Uh, sharing Jesus with other people this morning, but uh, as uh, we're going to keep our our, uh, our Hispanic ministry, we're going to stay in here. We have uh, outlines in Spanish in our bulletins, so if you don't have a copy of that, uh, wave your hand and I'll make sure you can get those to you, but uh, uh, Brother Jay, would you come and pray over those who are going to be sharing God's Word this morning? Heavenly Father, we love you, and uh, we thank you so much for your love for us and for this day that you've allowed us to come into your house. Father, I just thank you for each uh, individual that's here today and each family that's represented. And, uh, Father, we just pray that we'll be a blessing to you as we uh, go through this service. Uh, Father, today we just pray uh, that you'll be with Brother Tom uh, as he leads us through our uh, through the message today. Uh, we just pray that you'll bless him, uh, that you'll be speaking through him, and uh, that, that your message will be heard loud and clear, Father. And uh, for Melissa, Father, we just pray that you'll be with her in her very important ministry of leading our youth. And, uh Uh, We just thank you for all that she does, and uh, pray that you'll bless her and those kids today. And Father, uh, we just thank you for Brother Ryan, uh, our shepherd here, and we just pray that you'll continue to bless him and his family, uh, keep him strong with all the work he's got he's got going, and and uh, just help him to keep up the good fight. We thank you and love you for all that you do. We thank you for Jesus in His name. We pray. Amen. All right, kiddos, we are now dismissed. One of the best noises in church are kids, I'm telling you, amen. We, uh, I've been in churches that had them, and I had been in churches that didn't. Um, I, I was telling them earlier, for those who were with me, I, one of the churches I pastored, we started with eight the first Sunday I was there, and it grew up, we had about 80 within about a year and a half, but we had a nursery for Sunday morning service, but we did not have a nursery for Sunday evening service. And so my wife would have to take our baby daughter. She was probably about six months old. And she would be at the nursery of the church. It was all the way across the building. You had to go through two dark buildings to get to the nursery and sit in there. And she didn't want to do that or just stay at home. And she didn't want to do that. So she came and sat sat on the back pew uh, during the worship service, and uh, which was fine as long as we were doing the singing and everything else. And then I would get up to preach. My daughter was, a, was and still is a huge daddy's girl. She's 22 now, but even then, she, just, she heard my voice. She wanted to be with me. So she would start screaming and crying, and so finally we just gave up. And I held her while I preached every Sunday night for a year. And so they just knew it. I was going to be holding Julia as I preached, and she was fine with that. They were fine with that. I was fine with it, still would be today. But she's 22, a little, little big for me to hold. Um, but anyway, well, thank you for letting me come. Uh, I'm going to be looking at Acts chapter 6, chapter 8, and skipping over to a couple of verses in 21, all in the book of Acts. We're going to look at a guy named Philip uh, today. Philip, not the disciple. There's one of the 12 disciples name is Philip. We're not looking at that guy. There's another one. In fact, there's four Philips mentioned in the Bible, two key ones. The disciples one, and this is the other one that we're going to look at today. 
And as we, we see the story of Philip, we see that he arrives on the scene in the middle of a church problem. Now, I know nobody here has ever seen a church have a problem before, right? No, all churches do one form or another in some way or another or some time or another they have. And the church had just taken off. We, when we read in Acts, Jesus gives us this great commission that you're going to be my disciples in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and the other mars, most parts of the world. We're, we're on a high optimistic note on Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He goes up into heaven, and the disciples are still looking up in heaven, and they go, now what? An angel has to come say, he's gone, it's over, now go be the church. And that's what happens in Acts chapter 1. And they do. We have this great evangelistic work going on. Lots of people coming to faith. Thousands of people coming to know Jesus as their Savior, even though he's now gone. And, uh, and, and things are just flourishing. Things are going well. The church is growing until we get to chapter 6. And then what, let me set up what happens in chapter 6. There's two groups of women in, the, in, in, in Acts chapter 6 that start getting irritated with each other. One's called the Hellenists and one are called the Hebrews, or another way, another way of saying the, the women who have Greek heritage and the women who have Jewish heritage. Now, they're both in the church. They're all Christians, and these are the widows, and they feel like life's not fair. Anybody ever felt like life's not fair? Join the club. We all feel like life's not fair sometimes. And so the Hebrew women were saying, uh, excuse me, the Hellenist women or the Greeks were saying, y'all are showing preferential treatment to the other ones over there. I've been in church work a long time. We've all had that feeling at one time or another. If you've never felt that other people had a better deal than you do, then I'm so excited you've never had that problem. But most of us can identify with this situation. In fact, it became such a headache in the church that they, were, they stopped doing evangelism. They stopped preaching. They stopped trying to win people to Christ. And all they were, they were tangled up was this first major problem that hit the church. And that's when they decided to bring Philip into the story, along with some other guys. So read with me, if you would. I'm going to read Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenist, or Greek, arose against the Hebrews, or the Jewish, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. They were providing money and food for the widows. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, so all the disciples got together, if you know their name in the New Testament, they're in this meeting. James and John and Peter and Andrew and, and all the rest of them. Matthew, they're all in this meeting, all the disciples. Everybody with any kind of connection to Jesus came together for this meeting in verse, tw- in verse 2. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables, to provide food. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And when they had pleased the whole, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. I'm reading out the ESV, English Standard Version, if yours is slightly different. When, they had pleased, what they, when what they said pleased the whole gathering, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, that's the guy we're going to look at, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So even the priest of the Sanhedrin that executed Jesus is now coming to faith because they were able to handle this conflict. 
Now, I hope there's never going to be a church conflict ever in this church that there never has been, never will be. I just know the reality of life where two people come together, you get three opinions. Isn't that how that kind of works? It happens in families and marriages and it happens in churches and organizations. These guys show us how to deal with the conflict in the right way. They decided they would, they, would, they would put some people in charge of handling the situation. They chose seven men. Now, the terminology that is used there is the word diakonos. This is where we get the first introduction to a deacon. And so these seven men are the first deacons elected by a church. And one of them is Philip. Now, Stephen, the first one mentioned, is going to be the first martyr that's going to come in just a, a couple of chapters. And Paul, who's going to be known as Saul at that time, is going to take his life. That becomes important later because Philip's going to interact with this same guy, Paul, who was responsible for killing his fellow deacon. But I want to focus on Philip and why this is important as we understand this whole business of being involved in missions and outreach and sharing our faith and telling people about Jesus and all those sorts of things. My role is, as, as Pastor Ryan said, is I am the director of church starting or church planting. I'm also the associate director of missions, and so I'm very involved in missions and evangelism. I want to thank your church because your church helps contribute to the work that we do. Now, there's a couple of ways that happens. One is just a percentage of the budget, the money that's collected, goes to do the work that we do. From this church and churches like it all across Texas, we're involved in ministry down on the, the Rio Grande with immigrants that are going, coming and going. We've seen about 12,000 people come to know faith in Christ through our missions efforts. We have uh, uh, prison ministries going on through all the prisons in the state of Texas. And we've started 51 churches so far this year. We have six more that we're going we're to officially start next week, bringing to the total for the year 57 churches. We've had about 12 to 14,000 uh, professions of faith already because of the work that you do, the work you've given helped us be a part of that. My heart is in missions and my heart is in, in te- teaching people about Christ. And we see Philip help this, this effort of teaching people about Christ in several different ways. In fact, Philip is a good example for everybody that's here right now. Did you notice a couple of things about the text that we just read? First of all, he's not preaching. So we're going to begin to look at the life of Philip. And sometimes we think that the people who do missions... And the people who do all the evangelism and the sharing of faith, that's the paid guy at the church, namely the pastor, maybe the guy who leads out in the youth or some other capacity. Maybe there's a missionary somewhere off in some other country. That's their job. It's their job to tell people about Christ. It's their job to, to live the faith in such a way that people are going to ask questions. But Philip is not one of those guys. Philip is not one of the disciples. Philip, is, it says in the text here, he was one of the guys they just picked to come help because there was a problem. And he was willing to do it. He said, hey, we've got a problem, and it's a really simple problem. Some of the women in the church who are widows are getting fed, we're providing an offering, we're taking up food, giving to them, and some of the women aren't. And, and the apostles get together, the 12 disciples, and they get the rest of the disciples and say, we, we can't spend time on this. We've got to have some help. And so they elect these seven guys who's going to be in charge of the food dis- distribution. Now, if you look for the most exciting jobs in church... And I want to be the church leader. I want to be the head guy. Very few people have ever called me and said, hey, do you have a a food distribution job I can come do at the church? That's really what the job is. Take care of these. That's why they said, what are we going to do? Wait on tables when we want to go preach the gospel. That's not a slam to that. It's just we have a different role. We've been called by Christ to go evangelize the world, but there's this, this very real physical need that we have to make sure is taken care of so that we can go out and do the, the, the spiritual needs as well. So they elect the seven. 
Now, I want to point out a couple of things we notice directly and indirectly in the seven. First of all, they all have Greek names. And Philip is a Greek name, named after the father of Alexander the Great, Philip of Macedon. So they are very intentional about the fact that they're trying to reach people in the church that's going to make a connection with the people who have the most need in the community and in the church. That tells us right then they're being very intentional of how they're relating to their community. So if we begin to think about how we're going to make a connection in our community, one of the things we need to understand is we have to pay attention of what things, how things appear, how we do things, and it matters how we get involved and who we get involved in the ministries that we do. I'll give you an, exa- an example. I went, to, I, went to my se- I went to seminary at Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Birmingham is notorious for lots of things, most of it not good. But I went to Birmingham in 1995. So you would think things would kind of settle down racially. There's a lot of divide in Birmingham. Some of y'all remember those days. And so I went there, and I went to a church that was a very large building. In fact, it was so large that in 1966, the Southern Baptist Convention met at this church. The pastor that built it was a Texan. So he built a big building, and everybody laughed. There was a big Texan that built a big church, so I don't know what that means. So they hired me, another Texan, to come in. The church had been an all-Anglo congregation. The community had transitioned to become nearly all African-American. They were very intentional. I didn't know this when I went there. They were very intentional about making sure that African-Americans did not come into their church. You heard that right. They didn't want them in the church. But a few would come because they didn't know that. It wasn't like they put a sign out front. So I was, I was there for a while, and I was inviting the youth. And most of the youth in the community were black, and so I was inviting them to come be part of the church. And so I remember one day we're having a meeting with the, with the leaders in the church, and and I was working with the youth, but we didn't have a pastor, so I was also doing the preaching and also all the visiting. And so we were, were talking about how we needed to reach our community. I just saw there was a kind of a quiet tension there. So I just kind of brought up again, well, we need to do this to reach the community. If we're going to reach our community, our community needs to look, or, I mean, excuse me, our church needs to look like our community. We had a few African-American families that would sit at the very back of the church, but none would move up to the front because of various reasons. And none were allowed to, to pray or be in the choir or take up the offering or anything like that. And certainly we wouldn't have a black preacher. And so I made the comment, well, if we want to reach our community, our leadership needs to look like our community. We need to involve some, some, some black folk up in the church leadership. They need to pray. They need to be in the choir. One of the gentlemen made this comment in Birmingham in 1995, not 1963, but in 1995, and he meant it every way that he could. He said, we don't mind if the blacks come to our church. They just need to kind of sit at the back of the church. If you know the history of Birmingham, you know, or Alabama, you know what that meant. I didn't stay at the church real long. My wife and I realized it was time to move on. The church eventually, by the way, died and the building was given over to a congregation, a black congregation that now is running about 3,000 in the church. It's an amazing story. I remember that sticking with me, this, this church decided they were going to involve the, the, and deal with the issue by integrating the need of the community and the need of the community of believers, the church, with the leadership, making sure that they were connected as well. So that's one thing we see with Philip. We see that he's part, if, if he's going to do outreach, he's going to, in some ways, ignore the racial tensions or whatever divides we have in our world. We have our boundaries. Overcome those boundaries, but also pay attention to them too because they're important in some ways. He, he, and we, we understood how important they were, but in other ways, 
They were overcomable. And so we, we see Philip introduced. He's a servant. He's not a preacher. The text tells us he was a man of good reputation. He was led by the Spirit, and he was full of wisdom. So being led by the Spirit, or being Spirit-led, we understood that he allowed God to speak to him and move him in his life and, and, and to guide him in what he's supposed to do. If we're going to begin to be able to share our faith, and that's the, the, the crux of what we're going to find in the entirety of Philip's life, is we need to be uh, those who share our faith. We need to be sensitive to the movement of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's going to come in spades in Philip's life. Now, the way we know what the Spirit is guiding us to do is we have to be in relationship with the Spirit. You know, we know the Trinity the best through the Holy Spirit. Yes, we, Jesus Christ died for our sins on the cross and rose again and went to heaven, but he left the Holy Spirit through us. And how we practically experience God is through the Holy Spirit, and it should be on an ongoing daily basis. He's our connection to the Father and the Son in our everyday life now. There are times we allow the Spirit to move in our lives. There are times we just kind of close it up. The Bible describes as we grieve the Holy Spirit by what we say and do. So if we're going to be involved and interested in other people's lives, we need to allow the Holy Spirit to guide us, and we need to surrender and submit our will to Him. And so Philip does that. He's full of wisdom, which means discernment. Not just knowledge, but beyond knowledge, it is discernment. The way I describe it this way, uh, what is wisdom versus being smart? A smart person learns from his mistakes. Anybody here ever make a mistake? I make plenty of them, right? A smart person learns from his own mistakes. A wise person learns from everybody else's mistakes. I know I'm not wise. I hope I'm smart. I hope I'm at least learning from my mistakes. But wisdom is being able to see and understand and discern what is right without even having to, be, having, having to touch the stove ourselves. It's that we can make those decisions and plans from afar and begin to, to put, implement the knowledge that we have. Philip is such a person. So he's led by the Spirit of God. He's open whatever God says for him to do through the Holy Spirit as the Spirit leads him and moves him in life. And as he, he thinks and plans and discerns and is wise, with the good reputation he has, he now is going to be in a sample of how we share our faith by what he does. Did you notice in the text that I read that discipleship increased? The discipleship increased because they took care of needs and because they returned back to preaching Jesus Christ. We're, we're not just a social club as the church here for ourselves. We're not just here just to make things nice for us. And we certainly don't have it a name it and claim it kind of religion where we just ask God for a bunch of blessings and then we don't have our responsibility either. No, we're here to serve God, to love each other, and bless the world around us. And that's not the church in general. That's each one of us personally. Everybody here has that responsibility. And Philip shows us how to do that. Let's give with me to chapter 8. Now, Philip was a deacon. The word there is the word servant. Philip was a servant. Philip also is bold. And we're going to see the, his, his story really escalate here in chapter 8. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. Now, Saul was the guy who kills Stephen. Saul approved of, of Stephen's execution in verse 1. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. So all the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. Everybody else went all throughout Judea and Samaria. You remember Acts chapter 1 verse 8? Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses. Where? Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. 
He left out a key important part to that sentence. And by the way, you know when that's going to get started? When Stephen dies. It's going to be an issue that's going to happen that's going to be the catalyst to get you guys moving into different places. And that's going to be the spread of the gospel. We find it in chapter 8. Verse 2 says, Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. The crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of the many who had had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So Philip goes to Samaria. Now, I remind you, Philip's not a preacher. It tells us that in the previous text, in chapter 6. And yet, because of persecution, Philip, like everybody else, is running out of Dodge. But he can't help but talk about Jesus where he goes. I want to think about us. I want you to think about yourself personally. I want to think about myself. First of all, we've probably never even faced this kind of persecution. A handful of Christians that you might know over the course of a lifetime might. Most Christians won't, that we know. There are certainly Christians in the world today that are dealing with this. I have a twin brother, and he was with the International Mission Board, and he was a missionary in a country in North Africa. And the country he was in is a Muslim country. It's a large Muslim country in North Africa. And he remembers the worst day he had in ministry. When he went there, he didn't know anybody. They didn't know hardly any Christians in the country. There was just a handful. And when he went there, one of his roles was to start sharing his faith. And he knew that his life was on the line. He knew that. We knew that. My mom knew that. She wasn't real excited about that, but my mom knew that. We knew that. There's a very real possibility this may require his life. There's no, no we were going to eyes wide open on this one. So he went and he, he had the chance to lead about 40 men to Christ over the course of a two-year period. When his darkest day that ever in his life happened. One day, police showed up at the door. That had happened before. This is about the fourth or fifth time the police had come and taken him down to the police station. But this was a different situation. Sir, you're not under arrest. We'd like you to come with us. Now, what do you say when you're in another country and they say, you're not under arrest, but we'd like for you to come with us? I said, oh, okay. He's ready to do whatever. The martyr, his martyr self is ready to go. He goes down to the police station, and he's standing in a room. And he says, we're not going to keep you very long. We just want you to see something. And they brought in 32 men into the room. And the police officer said to my brother in Arabic, he said, you see these 32 men? He said, you know why we've arrested them? We've arrested them because they know you. You're free to go. My brother went back to his room and realized things just shifted dramatically for him. He was in a country that not only was he putting his own life in jeopardy, he was now putting the lives of other people in jeopardy. Those 32 men were arrested simply because the police, other people watching my brother, had seen him have conversations with them. Now, they knew most of them had become Christians also. Not all of them had. Most of them would. Nearly all of them would. And many of them already had, but not all. And he had to wrestle with this concept in his mind. He had long before put to bed the idea of, I'm ready to give my life for Christ. If, if following Jesus and sharing my faith costs my life, I can, I can deal with that. But he had a new question. new question was, sharing my faith and talking about Christ, is, 
am I willing to now make it cost other people's lives? And the answer is still yes. He came to that conclusion, I still have to do it. Now, they released all 32 men. Some were released within hours. Most were released within weeks. Three or four of them had to stay months in prison. They became the core of pastors that he got to train. He trained 80 pastors in Algeria, the country, in North Africa. He, passed, he trained 80 pastors. Most, many of those men were in that original group were pastors. He led those all to Christ. They all became pastors for the sake of the gospel. Philip in this story, has the same thing happen. He just watched his fellow deacon, Stephen, be executed. He was there when it happened. He was in the city, at least. And now they're running for their lives. The, 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 the original 12, uh, Peter and John said, everybody else needs to get out of the city. We'll hold down the city. Y'all just go. Get out of here. We don't know what's going to happen. And Philip leaves, but he can't stop talking about Jesus. <sighs> What shuts us up so easily that when he sees his friend executed, he still can't stop talking about Jesus? And yet my mouth gets tight-lipped pretty quickly at times, just out of convenience sometimes, just out of embarrassment, just because out of awkwardness, because I don't know what to say. And yet he, with ease, it just flows out of him, and he's just going around, and, and he's just sharing faith, and people are coming to faith in droves. In fact... If you put together the story here, it says, as I kind of piece chapter 1 through 8 together, Jesus himself said, right as he's ready to go, you all are going to go change the world. It's going to start in Jerusalem. It's going to go to Judea. It's going to go to Samaria and in the uttermost parts of the world. And here's Philip, not a disciple, not Peter, not James, not John. Philip, just an ordinary guy who is the one taking it to Samaria. He's initiating that next phase of the gospel that Jesus himself laid out. I can't help but wonder, was Philip there that day when when Jesus was saying that? Did Jesus look at Philip and said, you're the one that's going to do this? At least telepathically, just through through his eyes? That's exciting news for all of us. It doesn't have to be the missionary. It doesn't have to be the pastor. Each one of us can initiate a great movement of God wherever, whoever we are, if we're just willing to talk about and live out our faith for Christ. Philip does that as he goes to Samaria. He makes a huge difference. He did not hide who he was. He wasn't ashamed of who he was. He went to the Samaritans, who, by the way, are the traditional enemies of God. These are the people who don't like the Jews, and the Jews don't like the Samaritans. Philip didn't care. Remember, he's the Greek that had dealt with the first racial issues. Now he's with another racial issue. These are the Samaritans that Jesus went to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. These are the Samaritans that Jesus told the story about the good Samaritan. And everybody was like thinking, there's nobody good that's from Samaria. How could that even possibly be a story they would have heard in their time? Philip goes and, and, and fulfills this next phase of Acts. Not one, of the, not one of the 12. And a great movement of God happens. Now, I'm not going to read all the text that follows that, but it becomes such an amazing movement of God, of what God is doing in, in, in Samaria, not in Jerusalem, under persecution. So many people start coming to faith. Somebody goes back down to Jerusalem and tells the disciples, hey, guys, uh, something's happening up in Samaria. Y'all got to go check it out. They sent James and John, uh, uh, excuse me, Peter and John, because they didn't know the church in Jerusalem didn't know what to do with this. Wait a minute, we thought this just Christianity stuff was just for the Jews. Now the Samaritans are receiving Christ. And somebody said, Jesus did say that. Remember, oh yeah, he did say that. But y'all need to go check this out because we don't know what this is all about. And there's not any of us leading it. Philip went up there and it's just breaking loose. Great revival's happening. 
So Peter and John go up, they check it out, and they come back and report, hey, this is real. This is happening. This is amazing. And it's in the midst of this revival that Philip got to be a part of. He's seen people come to know faith in Christ. And I've had a couple of periods in my life that I've had people commit their lives to Christ in droves, and I've seen that happen. And what an exciting time that is. That's an exciting time if you're one of the ones who your heart's been tickled so much that you're now for Christ, and, 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 and he's, he's woken you out of a spiritual slumber. But what an exciting time to be part of that when you've also been the one that's seen others wake up in Christ. If you've not had that experience yet, if you've not awakened in Christ, it is very simple just to come to faith in Christ and to walk with Him and find this excitement that Philip understood. We can understand it in our day and age as well. We can also be like Philip and share with others. So Peter and John come. They all talk about the other apostles in Jerusalem kind of validate it. Isn't that always exciting when somebody else validates your spiritual experience? So down in Jerusalem, they're going, yeah, I think that is real. The people in Samaria go, we know it's real. We've been a part of this the whole time. You you didn't have to tell us it's real. We know it's real. And you would think, well, God's going to use Philip in a mighty way by keeping him in Samaria the rest of his life. He's going to do something amazing in Samaria. But God has other plans, right? If you know the story of Philip. Skip with me back to chapter 8, but I'm going to skip down to verse 26. I, I did a lot of verses in between with a story that I just told. In the middle of the revival... In the middle of this great movement, in the middle of the Samaritans coming to know Christ, God pulls Philip out of that story. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. I'm going to stop right there. We'll get back to verse 26 in just a moment. I want you all to hear the enthusiasm of that verse. Hey, Philip. Thank you for starting this massive revival. This great movement of God is taking place. It is here. People, Samaritans are coming to faith. Nobody thought that was even possible. Even when Jesus said it, some people in the back of their minds were going, I don't know about that. But it's happening. Look at this amazing movement. Now, all of a sudden, I need you to go stand out in the desert by yourself. That's what verse 26 says. Now, how many of us? would be affronted by that? How many of us would be kind of irritated with God? How many of us who felt like we've given our heart and soul, we're going to do what God's told us to do? It's to this ministry, it's to this cause, but we've been doing this for a while, it is successful, and God comes and taps us on the shoulder and says, I want you to do something different. I'm like, no, no, I'm good, God. I like what I'm doing, it's working. He says, no, you're going to do something different. Uh, I don't think so. Yes, you are. Where you, where's it going to be, God? If you tell me where it is, I'll consider it. It's going to be on the desert by yourself. Now, wait a minute, God. We start the reasoning, right? I'm the one that got this thing started in Samaria. I'm really, I'm, I'm eloquent. I don't need to talk to rocks and sand. I, I led all these Samaritans to Christ. Even Peter and John had to come up and they looked at it and they go, yeah, it is good stuff. Can't you use me somewhere else? I mean, I need to go to the big cities. I need to go to, I need to, go to Rome. I need to, I need to go to new places. And the desert? Are you kidding me? God says you're going to the desert. Now, in reality, Philip didn't have that conversation. Tom would have that conversation with God. Philip doesn't. You know what Philip says? Okay. The angel of the Lord. That's what it says, verse 26. Hey, Philip, I want you to go to the desert. And Philip goes, okay. That's a guy who's fully submitted to what God says. He was just serving in the church. He needs to be a deacon. He says, yes, I'll do that. And then persecution. We need you to get here. Okay, I'll leave. But I want to talk about Jesus as they go, okay, just get out of town, go up there. Now the revival's taking place. And think about our own journeys of the ups and the downs that we have had. Some of us have been on fire for Christ, and we've had the, the spiritual equivalent of wet, cold water thrown on us and doused our, our enthusiasm for Christ. 
Sometimes we did it ourselves. Sometimes other people did it. Other times it's, it's been aflamed again in a good way. and We've been excited for Christ. At times God's used us in this capacity and other times at this capacity. And, and at times we're happy with God and sometimes we're not. Philip just is, is whatever God wants is what he does. Get back to the text, verse 27. And he arose and went. That's the okay part. So I want you to go to Gaza stand out in the desert. That's what 26 says. Go, go stand in the desert. And he went... Verse 27, And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who is in charge of all her treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. We'll stop right there. We're going to pick up 39 in just a second. There's an incredible, amazing boldness of Philip. There's a surrender to Philip. Philip's a servant. Philip is bold. But Philip is also available. And what I mean by that is he's available for whatever God wants and he's available to whomever he meets. He was available when they said, hey, will you come serve? Yes. You're going to Samaria? Okay, but I'm going to talk to them about Jesus. Okay. Hey, will you go to the desert? Okay. Whatever God needs. And we can just imagine. Now, I'm going to be Tom for just a moment. Now, I'm, I'm painting Philip in a good light, and I hope he was this way. He seems to be that way. But I'm going to tell you how I would be. I'd be walking down that hot desert road going, what in the world do you have me out here for, God? It's hot. There's nobody. I'm, 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 I'm just missing all my talents. I'm just, I was doing such a good work. I could go back to Jerusalem. I'll face execution. I'm not afraid of that. Whatever you want, I'll just do. But why am I out here, God? I almost just imagine Philip whistling the theme to Andy Griffith as he's going. This guy's just happy. Whatever God says, he's going to go do. He's just going down the road. He says, I want you to the desert. Okay, I'm in the desert. Now what, God? There's a chariot over there. I want you to talk to that guy. Okay. And he goes over and talks to the guy in the chariot. He's going alongside the chariot. It's probably not going very fast because it says he's not running as fast as he can. He runs over to it. And he's walking alongside the chariot. And he hears Isaiah. Now, this is key. He was spiritually astute enough and scripturally aware enough to know what this guy was reading and to be able to explain it. He has a biblical understanding, a theological understanding. That's important if we're going to share our faith. It's important if we're going to do missions. Now, as I explained earlier with the group that was here, we don't have to have a perfect outline memorized of all a bunch of Bible verses. There's typically four Bible verses that we need to know if we're going to share our faith. At least one minimal, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish or should not die but we'll have everlasting life. We need to know that one verse. They hold it up at baseball games, right? We should at least know that Bible verse. Romans chapter 3, uh, verse 23, for the wage of sin is death. 
We know that. All, excuse me, that's for all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. We know that. And then 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. We know that. That's the gospel message. Everybody in this room is say, has, 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 has sinned. There's no exception. We all know that. Take a rocket scientist to figure that out. We knew we sinned when we were four years old. We knew when there was guilt and shame in our heart. Not that our life is clouded by guilt and shame. We just know when we've done wrong. Everybody here knows when we've done wrong. We know we did it wrong last night. We knew we did it last week, whenever it was. We know that leads to death. Now, death in many different ways. For, for the wages of sin is death. It certainly is death eternally, separation from God. But you know our sin causes other kinds of death? We have a death in our relationships because of sin. We have death in the relationships of husbands to wives, parents to children, brothers and sisters, friends. They all are affected because of the sin in our lives. And it just kills our relationships a little bit. It kills our testimony. It kills the, 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 the life of our spiritual vitality. The sin does, kills all those things. It kills a little bit of us. And so that's the wages of sin. It's eternal, but it's also here and now, too. But God's given us a gift, and that is eternal life. He can redeem our lives. Now, certainly, that the greatest understanding of that is that eternally we are redeemed forever to be with Him in heaven. But He can redeem our, our relationships, and He can even redeem who we are on the inside. That's the story of the gospel. The gift of God is eternal life. It's Romans 6.23. And Romans 5.8 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't do anything. Jesus just died on our behalf. And then Romans 10, verse 9 says, If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord, you will be saved. That God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the simplicity of the gospel. Philip knew it. And he had a chance to share that. Beginning with the verse he read there in Isaiah, he goes straight to the gospel and he talks about the gospel. Now, we don't know the details of what he said, but we know he said enough that the guy says, Well, can I get baptized? So we know he got that far in the conversation. I've, I've, I've been, been in, in the room with a lot of people who've accepted Christ, and I've had a few that brought up baptism pretty early in the discussion, but most have not. This guy gets to the point, talks about being baptized. He says, I'm going to be baptized. Here's some water, wherever they are. It's a little pool that he found. He stopped and baptized him right there. Now, that's significant. Philip had just gone to Jerusalem. Uh, excuse me, the eunuch had just gone to Jerusalem. Without going into a lot of detail, he would not have been allowed to go into the temple. Since he went to the temple, he could go to the temple courts and he could look in. And that's as close as he could get to God. He'd get to the temple and he could look in. Because of his personage, because of his heritage, he was not allowed into the temple. And on the way back, from going all the way from Ethiopia to Jerusalem, not being allowed to get in the temple, on the way back, he gets told by Philip, oh, you can get in. By the blood of Jesus Christ, you can get in. It's inclusive of everyone. He says, I want that till we get baptized. So, back to the story of Philip. He's just serving the church. He's elected a deacon. I'm sure he's excited about that. He's serving faithfully. One of the fellow deacons is executed. He flees to Samaria. He leads this great, great movement of God. God plucks him out of there and zaps him over into the desert. He gets to meet the, 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 the Ethiopian, who, by the way, takes the gospel back to Ethiopia. Ethiopia, the Coptic church and Ethiopian church is one of the oldest churches still on earth today. Probably comes from this event. This is a high guy. He made a huge influence. He had a chance perhaps even to go down to Africa. He could have done that, but that doesn't work out either. Get with me now if you go back to verse 39 where I stopped. And when they came up out of the water, so he's baptizing him mid-baptism. 
The Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Now, I just read that in a very bland way. I'm going to retell that in a different way. They're mid-baptism. I mean, he goes down in the water. And when the guy comes up out of the baptism, Philip ain't there no more. That's a big deal. I would be freaking out, right? He's rejoicing. He's excited. Maybe he thinks he just saw an angel. He didn't know what just happened. But God is doing something amazing in Philip's life and the Ethiopian's life. The Ethiopians go back to to, to Africa and make a huge difference in that continent. But Philip is in mid-baptism. I don't know who would have been freaked out more, Philip or the Ethiopian. Philip is in the middle of baptism. I baptize you. Boop. Now he's gone. And he's out on the road, back on the desert road, no longer with the Ethiopian. And what does he do? Does he mope and complain? What again, God? I'm doing something amazing. I was with the, with the queen of Ethiopia's number one servant. You took me out of that opportunity. No. Nope. What does he do? He just goes along the road sharing his faith. This guy doesn't stop. Again, and think about me. Maybe you can identify with me. I think about how easy it is for me to stop sharing my faith. Now, I shared a few things earlier in, in the first hour that I was here during the, the Bible study time. There are some things we need to do to be able to share our faith, and we need to learn how to do those some simple things. We need to build relationships. And what I said was we need to earn the right to share our faith. If I just went out in the street and met somebody and just immediately started, you know, browbeating them about they need to accept Christ, they're probably not going to accept that very well. But I need to be in relationship with them. But once I'm in that relationship, at some point it needs to get intentional that I talk about my faith. I'm, it's, it's important to me. Do you know what I talk about? I talk about things that are important to me. I have a daughter named Julia. She's, she's 22. I have a son named Rhett. And he's 18. And I have a son named Grant. And Grant is 13. Julia's a senior at Baylor. Rhett's a senior at Birdville High School in the Fort Worth area where we live. And my son Grant is a uh, seventh grader at Smithfield Middle School. I can tell you all day long, I'll spend the next hour and a half talking about them. And some of y'all are thinking, please don't do that. But I will. I love those things. You know what else I love? I love baseball, and the Astros tied it up last night. Anybody watch that? I won't talk about college football. That was a wrecked day for a lot of people yesterday. But I, I love baseball. I remember I did summer missions in Ohio. I was working in an Amish community, and the only place I could stay was this lady who housed some college students, and she was a four-square holiness gospel church leader. Anybody know what a four-square holiness gospel church is? We don't have a lot of those around here. Let's just say they are the holy rollers, and she was a lot of fun, but she had us there. So we went and served in the church, and so I was talking about my family, not my kids then. It was my brother and sisters and my extended family. I was talking about baseball because I talked a lot about baseball. I coached it. I played it. I love baseball. I talked a lot about Texas, right? Because we Texans, we love Texans. What's the old saying? You, you, can, uh, you can always tell the Texan. You just can't tell them much. Isn't that how it goes? We all love Texas, right? And so I'm talking about these things. And so she just very, uh, you know, quietly, very nicely said to me, she's, Tom, you just love your family, right? I said, yes, I do. And I talked about them. You just love baseball, don't you? I sure do. I talked about them. And you love Texas, don't you? I said, yeah. She goes, why don't you talk about Jesus more? Oh, you love it when dear saints put you on the spot, right? She was right. As I learned, we talk about the things we love. And if we love Christ, it's going to be a natural outflow of who we are. Just like all the other things are that we talk about. 
And that's the case with Philip. So this last episode, he's taken away once again. And you just want to say, God, I'm doing some amazing stuff. Can I just keep doing this? And God said, nope, that's not, that's not for you, Philip. I got something else for you. I want you to go to Caesarea. Now, this closes out the story of Philip almost, except for two more verses at the end of the book of Acts. Do you remember Philip was elected deacon with a guy named Stephen? Do you remember Stephen was executed by a guy named Saul, who later changes his name Paul? Paul becomes a missionary. He later comes to faith in Christ. Many of y'all know the story of Paul. And he goes and he does missionary journeys. And one day, Paul, the guy who killed Philip's friend, knocks on Philip's door. Go with me to Acts chapter 21, verse 8. Luke is writing Acts, so Luke is with Paul. So when he says we, it's Luke and Paul and a few other people. Verse 8 says, And the next day we departed and came to Caesarea. Hey, that's where Philip went, right? We read that back in chapter 8. On the road he went up there. And we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He's having to reintroduce this character. Luke is saying, I know you all have heard about him, but that was 13 chapters ago. Hey, hey, Philip was still around. This is 20 years later, by the way. 20 years have transpired. And 20 years later, Apostle Paul who had been the once, once executor of the faith, the scattered the church, caused him to go to Samaria, is now an eva- a, a, a missionary, and has come to Caesarea. He enters the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters, daughters who prophesied. Tradition says all four would go on to do missions all over um, Europe and Africa. One of them would, would probably, by tradition, one of them would be there when the apostle John dies, the last apostle. She helped take care of him. It was his nurse when he died by tradition. One of the four daughters of Philip. Right there, again, we can make an argument from silence. Philip was living in Jerusalem. Everything was okay. Would you be a deacon? Yes. I'll serve, serve the widows. Persecution, he goes to Samaria. He talks about Jesus as he goes to Samaria. There's a great revival that takes place. God plucks him out of that, and he's on the desert road. He leads the Ethiopian royal dignitary to Christ. Immediately plucked out of that and put back on the road. He goes and he walks to Samaria, and then he just sort of disappears. Except we know this. On the way to Samaria, he's still talking about Jesus, right? You think he's been talking about Jesus the last 20 years? He has four daughters who devoted themselves, they never marry, they devoted themselves to serving the cause of Christ. And they're, they're going to be preaching and prophesying, not preaching, but prophesying and leading out in ministry throughout all of Europe and the Mediterranean. Yes, he's been talking about Jesus their entire lives. That really is the first point of being an evangelist, but it's the last one we find in the illustration is being evangelist starts at home. It starts where we are. It starts with those closest to us. As a pastor, most people in my church thought I was a pretty good dad. There were days that my daughter and sons would probably differ with their opinion. I wasn't always a good dad. I wish I was perfect. They probably thought I was a good husband. There were days my wife would probably question that. 
when we had our arguments and our issues because we're just really who we are at home. They can, those closest to us, our immediate family, our immediate circle of friends, and, and, and concentric circles, those we work with, they see, see the real us and who we are. And Philip's four daughters are a testament that he's a person of faith even in private. He's a person that talks about Jesus as he went. My dad built houses when I was growing up. He was a bivocational pastor, and his other job, we built houses. We built houses all over northeast Texas, northwest Louisiana, and southwest Arkansas. And he would draw pictures. My dad did not know the Lord until he was an adult, or my mom. They met in church after they both were saved. And he was staying just a step ahead of me, and he was teaching me the Bible. We did sheetrock work, among other things, and then we would splatter over it and paint over it. And on all these houses all over Texas, Louisiana, and Arkansas, whether the people there know it or not, we've got the Bible written in great detail on these, these sheetrock walls beneath the paint. Maybe that sanctifies the house. I don't know. My dad was teaching me. I watched my dad. My mom has had more people to Christ than anybody I know, and she's the greatest prayer warrior that I know and didn't know Jesus until she was an adult. I saw it at home personally. That's why I became a pastor. That's why my brother became a missionary. We saw it at home. My sister's worship lead in her church in Austin. We saw it at home. We first must live life in such a way that we have the legitimacy to share our faith with those closest to us. And that we must be intentional in how we do that. Philip shows us. It doesn't have to be the preacher. Philip shows us it is something we need to do on a constant basis. Philip shows us we have to go beyond racial barriers or regional barriers or any other boundaries that may divide us. Philip shows us we must be moving at the impulse of God and His Spirit in our lives. He shows us how to do missions and how to do, how to do evangelism, how to share our faith. I'll wrap up with this. It's the first thing I said when I, some of y'all were in the training earlier. Yeah, but... But you've said all that. I get it. I don't feel like I know enough. I don't feel like I know the Bible well enough. I certainly don't know all the questions. Then the first place we start in sharing our faith is prayer. So I'll finish where I started earlier. We pray. Pray. Pray that God would give us the ability to share our faith. Pray that we would have enough understanding ourselves. And if you're one here today, you've never given your life to Christ Pray to ask Christ to come in your life so that you can experience life like Philip. Philip didn't go to college. There wasn't a seminary training. He wasn't even one of the 12 disciples. He just had an experience with Jesus, and he'd had to tell other people about it. That's the blueprint for us. We must have had, hopefully we have had, or will have an experience with Jesus, and then let us tell other people about it. Stand with me. Bow, I'm going to lead us in a prayer. The pastor's going to be here at the front. I'll be at the front. Your head's bowed and your eyes closed. Maybe there's somebody here today, you've never trusted Christ as your Savior. And, and it was, this wasn't a message that was about the gospel, but it certainly was embedded in it. And if you've never given your life to Christ, if you're a boy or a girl, a teenager, an adult, you've never given your life to Christ, now is the time to do that. And just say, I want to experience what Philip experienced that changed his life. Or maybe you know somebody else in your life with your heads bowed and eyes closed. We'll give the opportunity in just a moment. But there's others here that you've got somebody on your heart that you know is without Christ. It's a family member. It's, a, it's your best friend. It's your boyfriend. It's your girlfriend. 
somebody in your family, somebody you love dearly, and you know right now that they're apart from God. Number one, would you pray for them? By name, just under your breath, just silently where you are, just lift them up. And number two, would you just pray for yourself to know how to be full of the wisdom to guide them to Christ? Your heads bowed, eyes closed. There's one more group of people here. Maybe there's some here you've been called to serve, and you've been hesitant to respond in that call. Maybe to serve as a pastor, a missionary, a leader, or just simply you don't know what it is, but you're just available to God, and you want to tell him, God, I want to be available and bold like Philip. Would you tell God that today? Maybe come to the front and pray with me or with your pastor. We're both here at the front. Our Father in heaven, I pray for each that are here today, and I thank you for the goodness that you've given to us. I thank you for the story of Philip, the evangelist. That final text tells us that title, Philip the evangelist, the one who shared the good news, one who experienced it and shared it. We thank you for his story. And God, it's an amazing story, and I wish I was that good. I wish I would measure up sometimes, and I have failed you, and many of us can identify with that, but help us to be better, Father. Father, as I was talking about those people in our minds, right now, some right now are thinking of those, those other people. Their names are clear in their minds of who need you, and I've got them in my mind. As we lift up those people to you, I'm thinking about Jim, Father. I'm thinking about Troy, Father. Other people in my life that I know need you right now. Think about Norman and Glenn. I'm not asking anybody else to name them out loud, but just where you are before the Lord, if you just tell those names, Father, would you put the right people in the lives? If those, some of those people, we know them and we'll see them today and tomorrow and this week, some of those people live far off. So, Father, put the right people in their lives that they would know you better because of the people that's in their lives, whether it's us or others. I pray, Father, your blessings on each here today. I pray, Father, you just guide us. I thank you for your goodness. I pray in Christ's name, amen. You respond if God has moved your heart, maybe to give your life to Christ, maybe to join the church, or, or maybe it's just simply just come pray and God will move, use you like he used Philip.
Oh 